Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. So happy to be here with you, and I appreciate you spending some time with me for this excellent show. It really is. I have a great interview to share with you this evening. We're going to be talking with Professor Sam Lawler about Starlink satellites and light pollution and space junk, Kessler syndrome, all sorts of things. Before I get to the interview, though, I want to say something about last week's show. I have a, I have a correction to make. You know, sometimes media outlets will, will publish a correction. <laughs> well, it's my turn because I, I made a mistake. Last week I did uh, a show where I didn't have a guest. I was speaking the entire hour and I was talking about Apple and their uh, face jail headset that has just come out. And in that, I was drawing a comparison between the uh, the Apple Super Bowl ad from 40 years ago and Apple today. Specifically, I was saying that the, uh, the Super Bowl ad from 40 years ago that int- introduced Macintosh was making the case that Apple, the, the, the new Macintosh, was the alternative to this hegemonic, um, overbearing, Orwellian organization. And I said, at that time, 40 years ago, it was the evil empire. And do you know who that was? I said last week, it was Microsoft. Well, not exactly. In fact, not at all. (laughs) I mean, Microsoft was later called the evil empire for very good reasons. And I've covered that on other shows. But at the time of that Super Bowl ad 40 years ago, um, that was a reaction to IBM. And there were a couple of commenters on the comment board who pointed that out, pointed out the correction. And so thank you to uh, those of you who did that. You're, you were right. It was, it was IBM, not Microsoft. Microsoft had its own turn as Evil Empire uh, later. Well, the turn that actually continues to this day. But there's just... <laughs> The difference today is that there's just a multiplicity of evil empires uh, that we call big tech. But anyway, at the time of the Super Bowl ad, it was IBM, not Microsoft. Sorry for the error. Um, that was me speaking as as I often do. Off, There's no script here. I'm just going off of my own understanding and my own history um, in the tech industry, and I got that one wrong, and I didn't have any ability to read the comment board as I was speaking. So there's your correction. Uh, I hope everyone has been listening uh, straight to WFMU from last week to this week. So this is just one unbroken series of audio programs in which that makes complete sense. But if it doesn't, you can go back and listen to that archive at WFMU.org or at tectonic.fm. Okay, let's get into tonight's show. As I said before, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Sam Lawler. She is an astronomer, uh, and she works at the University of Regina in Canada, in Saskatchewan, Canada. And we're going to be talking about, among other things, uh, we're going to be talking about Starlink satellites. And I, I just want to say something ahead of time, because I, as, as I was listening later uh, to the interview, I realized we only clarified this about halfway through the interview, what a Starlink satellite actually does. So Starlink satellites are, are, are launched into space into low Earth orbit by a company called SpaceX. All of this is owned by Elon Musk. And the reason there are so, so many Starlink satellites is, is because these Starlink satellites provide Internet access to people on the ground. Um, so for people outside city centers, maybe they're, they're in a rural location that doesn't have um, good Internet access. Sometimes people have judged Starlink to be um, a decent option to get Internet access. So as we begin talking about Starlink satellites, just keep in mind the, the reason there are, they are 
there in space in the first place is to deliver internet access to people and armies on the ground on Earth. That's why they're there. And what we're going to do in this conversation is we're going to talk about the drawbacks of Starlink satellites as well as other satellites in uh, low Earth orbit. Uh, the other thing I want to say is that low Earth orbit, as uh, as Sam is going to describe, it's, it's just at the very uh, outer edges of our atmosphere. Um, that's different from geosynchronous orbit, which is a good deal further out. And there are satellites in geosynchronous orbit as well, which we are not talking about. We're just talking about the satellites that are in low Earth orbit that are just, just at the edge of space. I don't know if that's the correct scientific term, but that's how I'm describing it. Um, we'll get into some facts and figures from Sam, who's the expert, in a moment. So we're going to listen to this interview with Sam Lawler. If you want to join in the live listener chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlists and comments, and you can join the listeners who are already chatting away. If you're listening to the future, um, in the future, to an archive or podcast version, you can go to tectonic.fm. That's T-E-C-H tonic.fm and click the playlist link for February 12, 2024. And you can read what the listeners wrote. And there's also a bunch of links to Sam Lawler's work on the playlist for, for anybody who wants to read more or watch uh, one of her presentations, which I thought was excellent, by the way. It's, it's all there on the playlist. So many resources for you to learn more after you listen to this interview with Sam Lawler here on Tectonic on WFMU. Sam Lawler, welcome to Tectonic. Thanks for having me. So glad you're with us. You are a professor of astronomy at the University of Regina in Saskatchewan, Canada. And you're doing really important work studying the rapidly increasing number of satellites in low Earth orbit. But before we get to the satellites and the problems they're causing, I want to start with something positive and beautiful. <laughs> you live on a farm in a remote part of Canada. Can you tell us what is it like when you go outside at night and you look up at the sky? Oh, it's it's great. So as you know, an academic, most academic jobs are in big cities. So I've never gotten to live somewhere where I can see the see the night sky unpolluted. Um, and there's a little bit of light pollution here, but I can walk out of my back door and see the Milky Way. I can see auroras. I can see stars all the way down to the horizon. It is incredible. I, I appreciate it every single clear night that I get. And that's an experience that fewer and fewer people are having these days. Of course, it for yeah. most of human history, it was the normal experience to go outside and see those things. But now with light pollution from cities and even suburbs, we're getting less of that. But that's not the only source of light pollution that you as an astronomer are dealing with. Now I want to talk about these low Earth orbit satellites. As I was reading and watching the materials to prepare for this interview, I learned a new word. It's called mega constellation. What is a mega constellation and <laughs> how does that feed into the problem of light pollution? Okay, so previously to 2019, um, most satellites that were launched were kind of one-offs, like, you know, a company or a government would spend a whole lot of money to build one fancy satellite and send it up. But SpaceX has pioneered building satellites fast and cheap and many of them and sending many, many satellites up at once. And uh, so astronomers call this a mega constellation because uh, it's not just a, a constellation of satellites. It is uh, many tens of thousands of satellites is what, what the current plans are for. And there's many companies that are lined up to do the same thing. Starlink, uh, SpaceX's mega constellation is, is the first one. And the problem for light pollution is that these satellites, because they're at high altitudes, they reflect sunlight long after the sun has set. So you see them in the sky. They look like uh, like stars that are moving, like a little bit faster than a jet. And it used to be, you know, kind of a special thing. Like I used to look up 
uh, when when is the International Space Station going to fly over and you know wave at the astronauts? Right. Uh, that was that was neat and exciting. But now. Now it's like it, there's so many, like any time within a couple hours of sunrise or sunset from anywhere in the world, you will see satellites in your sky reflecting sunlight. So so that's that's a huge change that has happened just in the last four years, primarily driven by Starlink. But like I mentioned, there's a lot of companies lined up to do the exact same thing. Isn't it true that a few years ago there was a spate of UFO sightings. <laughs> People yeah. were calling their local police department because they would they would see not yeah. one light, but they would see a whole train of lights moving in the sky. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I don't have you seen a Starlink train before? No, I haven't. Okay. It is so I study this, right? I've run simulations on this. And the first time I saw one, I was completely blown away at how weird it looks, right? So so when these Starlink satellites first launch, they're at a lower altitude and they're very close together. So like when they first launch, it just looks like a line moving across the sky. It is just totally bizarre. And then they spread out a little bit more and you just have set like many, it looks like many moving stars right next to each other. And they're super bright, just, you know, brighter than Venus. It's crazy how bright they are. And it looks so weird. I have had so many people call me with UFO questions, me personally, and every astronomer that I know has experienced this, right? Um, the New York Times had a big article uh, about how, um, yeah, everybody's losing their minds because of the pandemic lockdowns. But like, no, it's Starlink. Starlink was launching at that time. Everybody's seen it. I, you know, I went on a radio show in South Korea, where they asked me about uh, UFO sightings over India, right? Like, this is worldwide. Everybody has seen this. SpaceX is doing nothing to teach people about this, this change that's happening in the night sky that's visible to everyone. And uh, it really annoys me that that I have to do their, their education for them. <laughs> I wonder if one reason why SpaceX is not educating people is because if they educated the public on what these things are in the night sky, they would have to educate the public on everything else that comes with that, which yeah. quickly gets depressing, terrifying. I don't know what the what the right word is, but you wrote something in the journal Nature last fall, uh, November 2023. You pointed out that as of that point, SpaceX had launched around 5,400 satellites that number of 5,000 and change is over half of all of the total active satellites in orbit. So there at that time were 8,859 as of last November. I'm sure it's gone up since then. Yep. I just looked it up before we started. Oh, you just looked it <laughs> so, up. Yeah. What, is, what is the current total right now? So the current total as of today, when we're recording this, February 7th, 5,806 uh, Starlink satellites, right? So 400 more have launched since I wrote that article in November, right? Like they're launching them fast. And there's 5,416 of them that are still in orbit out of 9,296 total active satellites. Uh, Starlink makes up 58% of all active satellites, right? One private company <laughs> controlled by one person uh, controls all of orbit effectively, right? They own more than half of all satellites. It's crazy. And they did that in four years. Oh, don't worry. Um, SpaceX is all owned by Elon Musk, and he he seems like a pretty normal guy. Yeah. So, um, oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the twist. So they've I know. So they have over half of all active satellites in orbit right now. It's uh, as you said over five thousand. But the twist is they are seeking approval, and maybe they already have gotten approval for over forty thousand satellites. Yeah. Yeah, they have provisional approval to launch over 40,000. <laughs> I mean, that's just... Yeah, more satellites than have ever been launched in total ever, right? Many times more satellites, and, and they have permission to do that if they want to. <laughs> I'm just going to jump ahead because I was going to bring this up later, but let's imagine a world where there are 40,000 satellites owned by one guy looping around in low Earth orbit we're not even going to get to all the other, we will 
soon get to all the other companies who are getting in on the party. But let's just talk about those, just those 40,000. In order to, this is something I, I heard you say in, in, a, in a past presentation, in order to get that provisional approval, Starlink had to assure the U.S. government that there was a less than 1 in 10,000 chance that a satellite would come down, not fully burn up in the atmosphere, but come down and kill somebody on the ground. And they said, yeah. let's call it 1 in 10,000. And as you said, if you do the math with 40,000 satellites, basically that's Starlink saying, we're going to kill four people. And the regulators said, okay, yeah, here's your signature. Yeah, yeah. Like all of the regulations are not set up for this many satellites, right? They're set up to approve one satellite at a time, maybe a couple, right? Um, and I believe that SpaceX has like updated those numbers uh, since they got the um, the 40,000 approval. But um, but like in their initial filings for, I think it was 12,000 was what they initially asked for. They basically said like, yeah, we got a one in 10,000 chance we're going to kill somebody. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty crazy that uh that that got approved um spacex makes a lot of i mean there is like really fantastic engineering that goes into these satellites like don't don't get me wrong i'm not and i'm not an engineer i i can step back and say like wow this is really impressive stuff um but <laughs> but like just on the sheer scale there's so many things that they're not thinking about so that is what worries me um they they make a big deal out of the fact that their satellites are they call them completely demisable. So they're designed to burn up completely in Earth's upper atmosphere and not make it to the ground. Uh, there's a small chance that some little pieces will make it to the ground. But this is their claim. I believe that there is, from, from what I've seen, so again, I'm not an expert and I'm not an engineer, but from what I have seen on this topic is that there's no checks on this. Like they don't have to provide a satellite for testing to make sure that it will demise fully, which would be great, right? Like, you know, car companies have to like smash a few cars to show that they're safe, right? Satellite companies should have to give up a few satellites for testing, right? Like, it would also be great to find out what chemicals are they going to release in the upper atmosphere when when they fully demise, right? So that that's a different topic, but... <laughs> now, let me just make sure I understand. So when they said... There's a one in 10,000 chance of us killing someone with one of our satellites falling on someone's head. Was that them acknowledging that some of their satellites may not fully burn up? Um, I believe that was the initial calculation, right? So like I said, they have changed, right? They've made, like, this was a few years ago. They're moving very quickly and changing their satellite design very quickly. But yeah, my my understanding is, like, in the initial filings they said that because this this is a threshold that nasa sets that that like your spacecraft has to have less than a one in ten thousand chance of killing someone right that's which is not very reassuring when you start getting tens of thousands of spacecraft right um but that's that's like the the nasa threshold so yeah so they said like yeah we we can meet that but yeah when you run that for 12,000 satellites, that's basically saying like, yes, we will kill someone, right? <laughs> so that, that is not, you know, clearly that's not what they actually said in the filing. But if you actually run the numbers, right. yes, yes, that is. And that is what the um, the Federal Communications Commission, right? The FCC, the U.S. Federal Agency, which like their job is regulating radio broadcasts. They are not set up to regulate satellite safety, but that is what they've been asked to do, um, which is part of the problem, right? So so yeah, so that that is the only, really the only approval that they need to launch all of these satellites. They need this one US federal agency to sign off on it. So yeah, it's, it's uh, the regulation is not keeping up with how quickly the landscape is changing in orbit. And that is the biggest part of the problem. That just seems like that would ruin your whole day if a satellite fell on your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I mean it's it's you know, you see pictures now of of like nobody has been killed yet by you know a rocket body or, or a piece of whatever uh falling onto the ground, but like this this has happened, right? Um yeah, I've seen many recent pictures of like a piece of a SpaceX rocket or a piece of a you know SpaceX uh 
one of the um, dragon capsules, right, in somebody's field in Australia or something, right? So, you know, most of most of the world is not high population density. But what happens when one of these falls in a city? It's going to happen eventually. Um, and I think that is really unfortunately, like that seems to be the way regulation works. It's probably going to take a casualty before real strong regulation is put in place. It just seems like we're on the cusp of a major change. I mean, I know things are already changing very quickly, but we're looking at, like we said, 5,000-something SpaceX uh, Starlink satellites moving up to 40,000. Also, the size of the satellites is going to change too. Yeah. I mean, r- right now, just so listeners get a sense, you describe the basic Starlink satellite as something that is about the size of a truck. These are not small bits of machinery. Yeah, a lot of people think of these as like CubeSats, but they're not, they're big satellites. Every Starlink is is about the mass of a Ford F-150, right? These are big. And you've got five, over 5,000 of these truck-sized things circling the earth. They wanna take it up to 40,000 and they want to come out with a new model that's even bigger. Yeah, yeah, they keep they keep ramping up the size. Um the the original Starlinks were much smaller. Um you know, still still like I don't know, a few hundred kilograms, but not quite truck size, but they've been they've been making them bigger and bigger um with each new version. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of mass up there already. Now let's talk about some of the other companies. In a recent presentation, you said that we're on track for 65,000 satellites total. Yeah. From Starlink, from Amazon Kuiper, from OneWeb, and there's also a Chinese mega constellation that has gone under different names. Is is that still what we're on track for, 65,000? No, that's an underestimate. Isn't that horrible? <laughs> it's actually much worse than that. Those four um, mega constellations were the ones that seemed the most plausible when I wrote a research paper on this two years ago. But um, uh, there was a recent research paper where they went and looked at all of the the filings. So so companies have to like say like, okay, we plan to launch all these to uh, another. This is an international agency that regulates radio broadcasts, again, not set up for satellites. And there are 1 million planned satellites that have been filed for, right? So so 65,000 is a huge underestimate. Um, And like, there's, there's no way, like, I, I, I will say as an orbital dynamicist, there is no way we can have 1 million satellites in orbit safely. There is no way. (laughs) And we should just say that the reason why all these companies want to send up so many satellites is because Starlink is making a lot of money. These satellites deliver internet access to people on the ground, and that makes Elon Musk money. And so these are profit-seeking corporations, and they say, we want to make money too, and so do we, and so do we, and so do we. And that's how you end up with what should be a shared resource for everybody on Earth being dominated by a few corporations that are operating without any sense of the outcomes, really, the long-term outcomes yeah. to humanity. Yeah. And one one big question that I have that has not been answered well by any of the satellite companies is why do they need so many, right? Like, I don't know, my neighbors have Starlink now, right? Like, well, like it's working okay with 5,000 satellites. Why do they need eight times more satellites uh, to deliver service, right? Like, I don't, I don't think that that has been justified. And that's not something that they've been asked to justify at any stage of, of the, the process, right? They're just launching as fast as they can. So it seems like more of a, uh, a land grab, uh, right? A real estate grab. It seems that way to me as an outsider looking at it. Uh, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but yeah, why why is that? And it, like people really need the service, right? Like I live in a rural place. I know that if I live just a little bit farther out from the city, I wouldn't really have any good options except Starlink, right? Uh, rural and remote internet infrastructure is hugely lagging behind infrastructure for internet in cities, right? 
And that's true across Canada. That's true across the U.S. That's true across many, many places in the world, right? And so many governments see Starlink as like, oh, perfect. We don't have to worry about that anymore. They're taking care of it for us, right? And a lot of people are jumping on it because it is so needed, right? So I can absolutely understand why people have Starlink. I, w- I should say, like, I don't think you're a terrible person if you use Starlink, right? Like, it's <laughs> uh, I understand why people are jumping at this as a you know rural in- internet user. I understand this is this is uh, this is a big problem, but I think that we can do it better and safer <laughs> than it's being done right now. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with astronomer Sam Lawler, talking about the dangers associated with Starlink satellites and other low Earth orbit satellites. Uh, We're having a good conversation on the comment board. If you'd like to join in, go to WFMU.org and click playlist and comments. And uh, let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Sam Lawler here on Tectonic on WFMU. Let's talk about the safety aspect because whether we have 40,000 satellites, 65,000 satellites, or something approaching 1 million satellites, there is a problem when low Earth orbit gets too crowded. And of course, it's the possibility of collisions. And as you've pointed out before, at the speeds that these satellites are moving at, even flecks of paint can slam into a satellite and cause a catastrophic result. There's this thing called Kessler syndrome. (laughs) Maybe you can walk us through what is Kessler syndrome and Why is it something that we really want to avoid? And are we possibly in the beginning stages of Kessler syndrome already, even at fewer than 10,000 satellites? Yeah. Okay. This is, this is a big topic, but um, yeah. So, so in order to stay in orbit, you have to go really, really fast, right? Um, uh, If you, you know, imagine like, you know, throwing a baseball, right? You throw it and it lands a little ways away from you. Throw it farther, lands a little farther away. Like imagine you throw it so far that it goes over the horizon and all the way around the earth, right? Think about how fast it would have to go to do that, right? Um, So in order to stay in orbit, everything has to travel at several kilometers per second. And actually the lower orbit you are, the faster you have to go to stay in orbit. Uh, So all of these satellites are suddenly being added to the lowest stable orbits, right? If you get um, much lower than that, you start to get dragged from the atmosphere, right? Because Earth's atmosphere doesn't just end. It sort of um, gets, you know, thinner and thinner and thinner. So there's still, you know, a few molecules way up there at 550 kilometers altitude where Starlink operates. And that that atmospheric drag causes the satellites to slowly fall down. And this is this is a good thing in some ways because it means that, like, little flecks of paint and stuff will eventually fall down and burn up in Earth's atmosphere. Um, At 550 kilometers, the time scale for that is something like decades. Lower down, it, it happens faster. Higher up, it happens much, much slower, right? So these satellites are, you know, operating. Starlink is in this fairly low orbit where they have to travel very, very fast. They're adding satellites to this already incredibly dense orbital shell. They keep adding them. Uh, and the, the risk of collisions goes up and up and up as they uh, add higher and higher higher densities, right? So if you get a collision, which has happened in the past, um, we have had a collision between a functional satellite and a dead satellite, that creates a whole bunch of debris, right? And all of that debris is also traveling at several kilometers per second and now in slightly random directions, right? 
So that debris can, each piece of debris can take out other satellites. You know, if this happens in, in the Starlink orbit, that would be catastrophic very, very quickly because you have little pieces of debris taking out more satellites, making more debris. Uh, this is Kessler syndrome, right? This runaway collisional cascade. And uh, that is the worst case scenario for, for what could happen in orbit. So, so Starlink has a very sophisticated collision avoidance system that uh, they say is autonomous. So, so the Starlink satellites, because they're in the super high density orbit, they have to constantly change their orbits to avoid crashing into themselves, right? And so far, they've been very successful at it. The main problem comes in that there are lots and lots of pieces of junk that are also up there, right? And not all of them are mapped. Like we don't know where everything is. Um, and even very small things can cause really big problems very quickly, right? And this junk just sort of uh, slowly spirals through the orbit from from higher orbits, right? So it's constantly changing. It's constant, like it's really hard to keep track of. Um, Starlink satellites are also constantly changing their orbits, right? And so other companies, other you know governments that operate satellites have to basically ask permission to go through that that orbit, right? Right, uh, because Starlink is the one who is controlling. <laughs> all of the collision avoidance within within that high density shell. So, so far they have done a great job of avoiding collisions. There hasn't been any, but they're getting to higher and higher densities. And I don't know how long they can actually keep that up. Um, right now they maneuver their satellites when I believe it's a one in a hundred thousand chance of collision, right? Which sounds super tiny, right? But when you have 100,000 near collisions happening every year, which is what they're getting to, you're going to have a collision, right? <laughs> Even if you're maneuvering at that really safe threshold. Uh, so yeah, so I they can't keep it up. There's no way that they can do this flawlessly forever and keep increasing the density of that orbit. So again, like why do they need so many in that one orbit? That is making everything less safe. And if we get a collision in the Starlink orbit, you know, weather observation satellites, other communication satellites, spy satellites, right? Like those, many of those are right in that orbit. Uh, the astronauts, right? That would be unusable. If, if there is a collision in the Starlink shell, that part of orbit will be unusable for decades, at least. So um, that is the worst possible case. And I hope that we don't get to that, but I'm really scared that we're not going to change fast enough. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> right, because it needs regulation. And as you've pointed out before, it needs to be yeah. international regulation. It can't just be, okay, Canada wants to do the right thing and says, hey, stop that. Um, we're going to need multiple governments to work together to make some changes before Kessler syndrome actually occurs. I want to read something you you wrote about that, the risks here. You said if if Kessler syndrome actually occurs, it would, quote, prevent the use of communication, weather, science, and astronautical satellites in low Earth orbit for decades. And it yeah. is unclear whether a spacecraft could even be launched successfully through the debris shell. There's a phrase, debris shell, to, <laughs> en to enable travel to other planets. Humans would effectively be trapped on Earth by space junk. So the stakes are really high. And again, I, it's hard for me to avoid coming back to this point that much of our planetary future on this point and our ability to use communication satellites and, and so on rests in the hands of one man who yeah, yeah, is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how did we get to this point? where one yeah. Silicon Valley billionaire controls the next several decades of Earth's future in these respects. It's crazy. Yeah, it it, it is completely crazy. Yeah, and, and yeah, debris shell, right? Like that, these are all terms that I've used from astronomy simulations with like, you know, asteroid belt collisions and stuff. I never thought I would be applying this to our own orbit, right? Like that's that's horrible that we've we've gotten to this point. Um and uh yeah, and we might already be in the beginning stages of this, right? So Kessler syndrome is defined as the point where if you stop launches, 
the number of collisions will continue to increase, right? And like we are at such a high density already that that might be happening, right? Like even if we stopped launching all satellites tomorrow, collisions would continue to increase, right? There's so many satellites out there. And I should point out that um, geosynchronous orbit is way outside where this would happen. So like we'd still have geosynchronous satellites, even if we have full Kessler syndrome happening in low Earth orbit, we'd still have geosynchronous satellites for as long as they continue to function, but uh, we wouldn't be able to replace them, right? So uh, <laughs> let's not do that, please. <laughs> There's one other aspect that I want to cover because I feel like we have not terrified and depressed the listeners quite enough. So just yeah. one last step. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and that is that what tech apologists will say, and I've heard this, is they say, you Luddite, you, you're always complaining about everything. Don't you know that all of these bits of satellites and everything else and flecks of paint, they're all going to re-enter the atmosphere and they're going to burn up? It's such an elegant solution. It's a self-cleaning technology. We've already covered why that's not such a great assumption because these little flecks of paint and a lot of the debris shell can stick around for decades. But let's just say that was the case. Let's say that the lifetime of a satellite in SpaceX's own publications, they say the satellites are designed to stay up for five years and then to re-enter burn up. Okay, let's just talk about what happens when a truck-sized mass of electronics and other kinds of materials burns up in the upper atmosphere. And again, we're not talking about one here or there. We're talking about thousands. You've pointed out that if around 40,000 satellites, which is what they want to put up, are coming down every five years, that means that the atmosphere every day is going to be getting 23 truck-sized masses of material. Yeah. It's it's one one truck per hour is is a good way to think about it. That's a horrible way to think about it. And yeah. so what's in these satellites and why should we be concerned about polluting our upper atmosphere with this stuff? Yeah. And okay, so this is this is the the scariest part is we don't know. We really don't know, right? So this is somewhere where, you know, astronomers are sort of like the canaries in the coal mine here because like we see, oh my gosh, there's all these satellites in the sky. That's annoying. It's messing up my data, right? Wait a second. How many are they going to launch? Oh no, that's really going to cause problems. Wait a second. What does that actually do to the atmosphere? Oh my gosh, right? Like I'm not an atmospheric scientist. Like very few people have just started to study this, right? Uh, one satellite per hour is basically what they're saying that they're going to burn up in the atmosphere, right? Satellites are mostly aluminum by mass, right? Like that's most of the the casing around them and everything. They also have a bunch of weird metals in like, you know, solar panels and computer chips and stuff, right? And that is, it's not going away, right? It is getting added to Earth's upper atmosphere uh, every hour, right? You know, you can point out like, well, but wait, you know, Earth gets 50 tons of meteorites per day entering Earth's atmosphere, which is true. But meteorites are mostly rocks, right? They're not mostly metal. They're, you know, a few, you know, you, you think about meteorites, you think about a big hunk of metal, right? But most of the most of the meteoroids that are uh, entering Earth's atmosphere are rocks. Uh, most of the mass of these satellites is metals, right? What is that going to do? <laughs> we don't actually know. We have no idea. Um, there's some uh, indication that it could make uh, alumina, which is, ozone depleting it reflects sunlight i've also heard people say like oh that's great it'll lower earth's temperature and like that's like geoengineering like no 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 like oh my gosh if you're going to if you're going to talk about geoengineering you need to talk about it carefully and deliberately not as an accident of some other terrible thing that we're doing right like that is not not the way to talk about this so don't talk about this positively we don't actually know what this is going to do i saw a recent paper that it could even change how earth's magnetosphere operates right it could change earth's magnetic field because suddenly you have this shell of metal ions in the upper atmosphere that could shield earth's natural magnetic field 
from uh, going out into space? What would that do to, uh, you know, incoming solar storms and stuff, right? Like, we have no idea what we are doing. And uh, these companies, because so space is not legally considered an environment, so they don't have to do any sort of environmental assessment, right? Like one big thing that would help here is if space were legally considered an environment, because it is intimately tied to our upper atmosphere and, you know, the surface of the planet, right? And there was a case that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. I believe it's been appealed now, but I'm not 100% sure of that, um, to try to get low Earth orbit, at least, recognized as an environment and subject to uh, U.S. Uh, environmental regulations. Uh, so we just have to wait and see if that that helps at all. But yeah, right now, these companies don't have to do anything to show that this is safe. And a lot of astronomers like me have sat down and just done back of the envelope calculations and and uh, are very freaked out now. <laughs> yeah, a pattern I hear in your responses is there's no regulation. So these companies can do yeah. whatever they want and they can be as opaque as they want about yes. what materials are in the satellites and what their plans are and how they work and everything else. They don't have to tell us anything. They don't even have to educate the public about what these lines are yeah. in the sky. So yeah, um, one of my collaborators was trying to find, like uh, trying to start doing some you know, atmospheric modeling and just asked like, so what, uh, what are your satellites made of? Right. And started having a conversation with one of the satellite companies and they wanted, uh, wanted her to sign a non-disclosure oh, agreement before they would tell her anything. Right. And I was like, well, but that doesn't help because then I can't actually do anything with it. Right. So it's just a totally different mentality. Right. Uh, like it's all considered to be proprietary, keep all the secrets, don't share it with anybody, but like, it is to the point where it is it is going to change our atmosphere. Um, there was a recent uh, stratospheric science flight that found that 10%, 10% of dust is already um, from, from re-entries of rockets and satellites, right? We're already starting to see this change in the upper atmosphere. And we don't know what it's going to do. We have no idea. Nobody is studying it. Satellite companies need to fund this study because we need to know if it's safe or not. I'm, I'm just, I've got my hand over my forehead. You can see yeah. this. Oh, do you want to go, do you want to go to like uh, what people can do to fight this? <laughs> we can talk about that. I do, but there's one other thing that I want to point out. Yeah. You shouldn't have to be doing this. I mean, you're doing great work educating the public, but you trained as an astronomer who's studying the Kuiper belt and you can't even do that as well because these stupid right. satellites are screwing up your photography. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. So, so I study orbits in the Kuiper belt. You um, stare at a spot on the sky for a few minutes at a time, watch to see what moves between your images. Right. And then you can you know, figure out how far away they are, what kind of orbits they're on, right? That was what I would love to be getting back to. I would love to just, you know, just geek out about cool orbits uh, rather than worrying about uh, the future of my my scientific field and my atmosphere. Uh, <laughs> but you really need to get uh, observation points really close to twilight, which is when satellites are the brightest, right? So, so you know, while I'm trying to look for a Kuiper Belt object or while another astronomer is trying to look for uh, potentially hazardous asteroids, you stare at one spot on the sky for a few minutes. And in that time, many satellites will fly through the field of view and leave these bright lines across your, your image, right? And you lose that data. All of astronomy, right? Every single taxpayer-funded ground-based telescope is now doing less effective science because of the actions of a private company, right? Uh, that hurts. <laughs> that, that really hurts. And, and I'm already seeing it in, in my data, right? Like uh, I'm trying to find new Kuiper Belt objects and uh, my search is less effective than it was um, even three years ago. Uh, it's it, like the number of satellite streaks in my images it's already it's causing problems now and it's just going to get worse um so yeah it's 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 really bad <laughs> all right what can we do sam help us yeah okay so i mean what would help the most is of course international regulation right but that is super slow 
what you can do to help is, well, number one, tell people, right? Most people are completely unaware that this is happening, especially if you live in a fairly light polluted place like, you know, the East Coast of, of the US, right? It, you haven't seen these. You might not have even seen a Starlink train, even though they're super bright, right? Um, tell people how the sky is changing and how orbit is changing and how that is making everything less safe, right? And and we don't know what these, you know, what is going to happen in the atmosphere because of all of these planned re-entries, right? Most people have no idea of the downsides. They just think, oh, Starlink internet, that's cool. Um, and they don't know all of the drawbacks, right? Um, so tell people that that is the first step. The next step is talk to your government representatives and advocate for other ways of getting rural internet, right? Um, a lot of this is being driven by military funding at this point, and there's not a whole lot that uh, individuals can do about that. Um, but uh, rural internet is kind of like their main market, at least the, the main market that they talk about. So get other ways of, of, of broadband, right? Rural broadband is so neglected you know, where I live. You know, I know this is true in the U S I know it's true in Canada, right? Where I live, I could connect my house to, I'm, I'm connected to electricity. Uh, I'm connected to a phone line that I don't use. I'm, I could connect to a natural gas line, even though, you know, I live 10 kilometers from the nearest town, but I can't connect to broadband, right? I'm on a cell tower network here. Um, so like advocating, for that development is really important at all levels of government, right? And then go enjoy the night sky, right? That that is that is another thing that I would I would tell everyone to do. Go, there's some great maps. Dark Sky International is a great uh, a great dark sky advocacy group. They've got some good maps. You can look up like where is the closest dark sky place to my house? Could I go camping there? Get out and and look at the night sky. See the satellites. Know that. At most latitudes, not all latitudes, but at most latitudes, there is a period uh, where you can't see any satellites and enjoy it, <laughs> right? Um, uh, you know, go go look at the night sky and take a friend with you, right? <laughs> Let people see this this shared resource that we are losing access to, both because of urban light pollution and because of satellites. So, yeah, <laughs> those are those are some tips. <laughs> go see the night sky while we still can. I think that's good advice. Yeah. Sam, I really appreciate you taking this time to speak with us today. Sam Lawler at the University of Regina, thanks for being on Tectonic, and I hope you'll be back sometime. Thanks, thanks for having me. Clear skies, everybody. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining nine and a half minutes of the show. And then it's time, once again, for more Mandel than you can handle with his, that is, Dave Mandel's prog rock show called It's Complicated. Hope you'll stay tuned for that. And then Bad Animals with Amanda and Jim the Poet. And then Brother Daniel Blumen with his eponymous show starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, going on to midnight. So just stay tuned, is what I'm telling you. We just heard my interview with Sam Lawler, professor and astronomist there in Saskatchewan, talking about the many, many, many problems with sending up tens of thousands of low earth orbit satellites in order to provide internet access that really we should be building out fiber and, and better infrastructure as Sam said in order to provide internet access for people who need it rather than just sending up more and more and more satellites in an environment, well, an environment that has not yet been declared an environment legally, but in a legal environment with no regulations. As she, as she pointed out, there, it's just a free-for-all up there. And 
Free for all is an interesting phrase, isn't it? Because if you take out the middle wor word, it turns into free fall, which is what satellites or satellite parts are going to start doing when we have 40,000. And keep in mind, 40,000 is just from one company. Okay, so 40,000 is what Elon Musk wants just for Starlink. Jeff Bezos's uh, Kuiper is is coming on with with more. I, we we listed the several companies, and that's just the ones that have have already filed. Um, we could be looking at hundreds of thousands of satellites in low Earth orbit in in coming years until uh, there is a series of collisions, and then we begin building our um, our 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 great human invention in the upper atmosphere, which is called the debris shell, uh, after which things get really interesting. Because if, if Kessler syndrome really takes off and there is a runaway collisional cascade, my favorite phrase of the interview, then we have this debris shell of, of bits that have exploded onto other bits that have turned into other bits. And they're all moving, uh, as she said, a, a couple of kilometers a second. So just say, let's just say it's about a mile a second. Little flecks of paint or, or a bit of metal going a mile a second. Um, this, is, this is the thing about the idea of these cleanup uh, missions. There have been a couple of cleanup missions that have, have tried to go up or are, are being planned to go up and start hoovering up some of the space junk. And it's Here's what I don't understand. How are you going to send up a grabber that can withstand something, a, a nail going at a mile a second? I mean, the thing that goes up to grab the space junk is going to get slammed into by something, and that's going to create more space junk. But not to mention, not to mention, not to uh, worry, because the tech bros have come out with a new startup. This is from Futurism from January of this year. I'm not making this up. This is a headline from Futurism.com. Startup building huge laser to shoot down space junk from the ground. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's really what we need, friends, is if there is too much space junk, we need to be <laughs> developing huge lasers. <laughs> I can't even say this with a straight face. Uh, they haven't launched yet, but I think they're getting funding and, and so on. There was also an attempt to clean up space junk. Uh, there was There's some dead satellite or something that's, that's floating around. And before they could send up the grabber, the thing, that, the target that, that needed to get cleaned up itself got pinged by a paint fleck or something. And that's that's now blown up into many more bits of space junk. This is a I'm, – I'm laughing because I don't, I don't really know what, what – <laughs> What other, um, I, I don't want to start crying or yelling or, I mean, it's just, this is a very dire situation and I'm at, I'm out of time now, but I just, I, I hope that you will tell your friends about something that you learned in this interview. You can tell them to listen to the interview or you can tell them to watch the video of Sam Lawler speaking about this. I linked on the playlist, or you can just tell them. Go outside on a, on a dark night, some, someplace outside the city, and look up because we're not going to have a view of, a night, of the night sky for that much longer if this continues. Uh, and this has never, ever happened before, ever, in human history. And we are creating it. We are allowing this to be created because of the runaway growth at any cost ethos of Silicon Valley and companies... Uh, that are funded by the tech billionaires, as well as other companies. Uh, but, you know, you can't miss that Elon Musk has the majority of satellites up there. Um, it's a very, very bad situation, not just for astronomers, um, but also for people on the ground, and really for anybody who in future generations may want to go to space. If we have a debris shell, you're not leaving the planet for, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years until all the paint flecks come down. So let's Let's start spreading the word, okay, friends? This is a really important interview. Sam Lawler's doing great work, and I hope you will tell your friends. Uh, you're listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know what to do. 
Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And I want you to stay tuned for Dave Mandel. And yes, this is the only outro that we could play. Have a great week, everybody. You're tuned to listener-supported WFMU in East Orange, WMFU in Mount Hope, in New York City, in Rockland County, 91.9 FM, and online at WFMU.org. And that's how we start. Welcome, folks, to another exciting installment of It's Complicated, an hour of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. I'm your host, Dave Mandel. I'm here every Monday at this time, which is 7 p.m., following Tectonic. And we have such a good show in store for you tonight. We're going to begin with music from Norway. It's going to be a group called Krokofront and a tune called Watcher of the Fries, which could be a Genesis reference, Watcher of the Skies, or in fact, could be a John Keats reference, which is where the phrase Watcher of the Skies comes from originally. You decide. This is a track from a 2021 album called Fifth. And again, Watcher of the Fries here from the group Crocofrant.
Thank you.